We are in the book of James, and normally I like to jump right into it, but I have uh, three quick but important things to say to you. Uh, The first is this. On Wednesday nights for about two months, we've been going through a class on how to read the Bible for yourself, Wednesday nights at 7 here here in the worship center. If you haven't been a part of that, or you were, but it's been a while, this Wednesday night at 7 is a great time to jump in because I'm going to take a detour from the workbook And I'm going to teach you something that is not found in the workbook. I'm going to teach you how to read the narratives of the Bible, in other words, the stories. And there's a very simple method. It takes a little practice, but it's a very simple method of determining why the story is there and what the point is. Every part of God's Word, including every single story, has a point. The key is learning what it is. If you only read the stories of the Bible for information, in other words, as a record of history, which they are, you may be tempted never to read them again because you say, well, I I know that story. I, I saw that movie. I don't need to see it again. If you know how to read the story to get to its point, you can be fed for life from the narratives of Scripture, which, by the way, are the majority of the Bible. If you look through your Bible, you'll discover most of it is narrative, and that is the reason for that is we love stories. Everything in our culture is a story, even a dishwasher uh, commercial is a story. You know, the kid fell down, his white pants are now stained with grass and for some reason chocolate and blood, and there's a terrible crisis and all is lost, but then mom comes in and she pours this thing in and now Billy is happy and he can, be, he can go out and play with the other boys again. And in 30 seconds, they'll tell you a story. Did you see visions of a commercial as I told that, as I made that up? That's how the human mind and heart work. We're tuned for stories, which is why God tells us our story and His story in His Word. So Wednesday night at 7, I'd like to show you how to interpret the stories of the Bible. That's number one. The second is to thank you sincerely for the overwhelming amount of kindness and cards and gifts and all the things that you wonderful, crazy people did for me last Sunday um, for my birthday. That's totally unexpected, completely undeserved, but very much appreciated. I even got new tennis shoes out of it. So, uh, I, I, I think this is what the kids call pumped up kicks, but I'm not sure. I may have missed that reference. And I said I wouldn't do this because my mother listens to the podcast, and if she hears or sees that her son wore tennis shoes to church, much less to preach, Well, there'll be another story, right, of a mother speaking to a son, asking what happened. Um, We raised you better than this, and you did, Mom, and hi, Mom. Uh, She's right, and I'm wrong, and thank you. That was the point of that story, is to say thank you sincerely for your constant kindness and encouragement. I don't deserve the life I've been given. I don't deserve to be the pastor of this church and the, the kindness with which you treat not only me, but all of our, all of our leaders and volunteers. Thank you. Uh, the third is, is heartfelt and serious. Uh, not all of you will, will know them, but they, you should. They're wonderful. Ralph and Valerie Calden uh, were brought into the life of this church years ago. Uh, they've grown to be dear friends, and Ralph has served this church in every capacity imaginable. He has particularly taken on the burden of the Great Commission and has sacrificed in a way that I've uh, seldom seen anybody do anywhere in the world. Uh, to help uh, people who otherwise won't hear the gospel. It was through Ralph and Valerie's uh, leadership and influence that we got involved. 
uh, fighting against sex, the scourge of sex trafficking here in Southern California. Uh, they're just spectacular people. And about a week ago, Ralph uh, got sick, and it's just been a cascading series of worse and worse news. He's in the hospital this morning, and uh, they have agreed to let me tell the whole church and to ask for your prayers. Uh, they, there, there aren't any easy, clear answers yet of exactly what's going on, but it's a, it's a, serious, it's a serious crisis in his health, and they both need our prayers. Ralph for healing and Valerie for peace and encouragement through this trial for her husband. So, could we take a moment and pray for them? Jesus, thank You for teaching us to pray. Thank You that Your Word tells us over and over again to pray, and that we don't have because we don't ask. So, we're not here this morning to ask You for anything, Lord, uh, that would be wrong. We're here to ask You for the blessing of healing and health for our friend Ralph. According to Your will and Your great mercy, Lord, I pray that You would work a miracle in his life. I thank You for his faith and perseverance and joy, how he's loved You and extended himself and everything You've given him, Lord, to love the least of these. And there are people now, Lord, who will someday be in heaven because of his faithfulness and generosity. I hardly know how to pray for my friends at a time like this, Lord, but thank You that You know everything, You love us dearly. So, I pray that for each of them and for their children, for everyone who is concerned about them, that You would answer, Lord, with Your beautiful, healing, wonderful will. We ask, God, that You would heal him and lift him up, that years from now, Lord, we would be able to recount stories of your faithfulness and your goodness in the deepest of trials. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the book of James, and one of the key things to know about James is that James is the brother of Jesus. That's what Scripture calls him. James did not always apparently believe in Jesus. That's understandable. From a merely human perspective, it's hard for us to envision what it would be like to grow up in an ordinary home where the older brother actually turned out to be the very Son of God. James didn't always believe. It seems that it took the resurrection of Jesus to convert him, but once James did believe, he lived for Christ, he lived for Jesus as few others have. His faithfulness, his sacrifice, his holiness is notable, is famous even in the history of the ancient church. And it's James that writes us this letter. This scholars believe there is a very good chance this is actually the very first letter written in the New Testament, written in the 40s, not too many years after the resurrection of Jesus. And James is writing as a believing Jew to his fellow believing Jews because persecution has swept into Jerusalem and scattered them. So, in the first verse of the letter that we've just begun last Sunday, James says that he is writing to those of the dispersion, those who have been scattered, who have been persecuted, who have suffered because of their love for Jesus. 
And as I told you last week, one of the things I really hadn't paid much attention to is how closely James's words and thoughts are to the very words of Jesus. James is reading, just to put you in a historical context, his Bible is what you and I call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. But as you read through the book of James, if you read carefully enough, and I hadn't, you'll see how often James writes things to encourage this very first generation of Christians, people who very well may have known Jesus in the flesh on earth, how often his writings remind people and remind you, if you pay attention, of the words of Jesus Himself. And the challenge of that is that Jesus is famous for saying things that look great as bumper stickers and postcards. They look amazing on a church t-shirt, but in actual practice, if you really stop and pay attention to Jesus, you may discover that you don't really believe what He's saying. Because the way Jesus teaches, the heart of His teaching is generally upside down from the way the world thinks. For instance, Jesus says things like this. Read this with me. Luke 9, verse 48, this is Jesus' teaching, and He said, For He who is least among you all is the one who is great. He who is least among you all is the one who is great. What a great slogan. You believe that? Do you live that way? Do you live in a way that you're pretty determined for people to make less of you? It's a serious question. It's a little rhetorical, but you can think about it. Not me. My favorite quote outside the Bible is this, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. <laughs> a friend of mine said that years ago, and it stuck with me because it rings so true. And you can look up the context later in Luke 9, verse 48, but Jesus is continually having to do this, including at the Last Supper. Jesus announces His death in the Gospel of Luke, and the disciples start arguing about who among them is going to be the greatest. If Jesus is going to die, how do you think we stack up on the org chart later? And Jesus says, He who is least among you all is actually the one who is great. And most people don't believe that. Jesus also says things like this. Read this with me. This is, in the gospel, this is in the book of Acts. It's not in the Gospels, but it's Paul is quoting Jesus. This is one of the many things the Gospels tell us that Jesus taught that are not recorded in the Gospels, but Paul is quoting it. Jesus actually said it. Read it with me. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You believe that? Did you hear the mixed emotions out there? I think I heard someone say, as I get older, I'm, I'm not sure because I'm getting older. I don't, I don't know if I heard that correctly. But Jesus says that it is a happier occasion to be a giver than to be a receiver. And that sounds so good, but, you know, I was carried into church before I knew I was in church. I'm three generations of Christians and three generations of ministers in our family. I've been in churches around the world. And I've never heard any congregation anywhere cheer when the offering was given. We're now going to receive our offering. Yes! Finally, we get a chance. Say, so that's ridiculous. Well, not if you take Jesus seriously. He said it's a happier occasion. It is a more blessed occasion when you have the opportunity to be a giver instead of a recipient. 
But nobody lives like that. The challenge of discipleship is to take Jesus seriously, trust Him and love Him enough to actually adjust both your attitudes and your actions to what He said. And I think one of the surprises of heaven and one of the disappointments when Jesus calls us all to account, not on the matter of our salvation, but on the matter of our obedience and our reward, more on that in a minute will be that we did not trust Him to tell us the truth, and we didn't act on what He said was true in the brief time we were given. Because Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if these just sound like little one-liners pulled from various places, let me show you something that He taught in a little more length also in the Gospel of Luke. He lifted up His eyes on His disciples Jesus looked up and looked His disciples in the eye and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to himself here in the third person for a very specific reason. The Son of Man is a messianic title from the book of Daniel written some 700 years earlier. Jesus is telling believing, understanding Jews, I'm the one that was promised. I'm the one the Psalms and the prophets have told you about all of these years. I'm the one. And it may come a time when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil for my sake, and if that ever happens to you, you'll be blessed for it. In fact, he said, Read the last part of this with me, beginning with the word rejoice. Jesus told us as His disciples, if that ever happens to us, here's our reaction. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So if you're a disciple of Jesus and following Jesus leads you to being criticized, and hated, and excluded, and spurned. Your name is now trash. And all of that happened not because you were foolish, or ignorant, or evil yourself. All of that happened to you because you are a Christian. Jesus says you should rejoice in that day, and He's really laying it on thick. He says you should do what? Leap for joy. Oh, good, they're after me again. I have loved Jesus, I have witnessed to Jesus, I have given to expand the cause of the gospel, I have sacrificed, and people hate me for it. Great! And here's why. It's not masochism, and it's actually not irrational. He's not being, as some people are on the internet, provocative on purpose, not even believing what they themselves say just to cause a reaction. Jesus says, the reason you should take that attitude is, behold, and that's a common way of Jesus speaking in our language, He's saying, pay attention. This is your mom, your dad saying, hey, hey, 
Listen. He already, Luke already told you, he looked up and looked, his, looked at his disciples. Now he's saying this next part, I really want you to pay attention. Everybody paying attention? Not to me, I'm just the messenger. Remember that. I'm not the one with the answers. I'm the one that tell, tells you about the one who has the answers. That's my entire role. I'm not that man. I tell you about that man. If Jesus has your attention, here's what he has to tell me, and here's what he has to tell you. When that happens to you, when you suffer for the cause of Christ, rejoice and leap for joy because, look, your reward is great in heaven. Here's an undertop part of the Bible. Entrance into the family of God is absolutely free because Jesus paid for sins on the cross and rose as promised in the Scriptures on the third day to give you eternal life. If you turn away from your own sinful way, your own determination, and entrust yourself to Jesus repentantly, He will save you because He died and rose again to give you eternal life. That's settled. What is undertaught is once God puts you in His family entirely by grace, from the moment you become a Christian, you have an opportunity to build up rewards in heaven. And what causes rewards to come your way is when you continue to respond in a Christian way to the sacrifice and the persecution and the giving and the loving and the forgiving. In other words, all the things it takes to actually act like Jesus when it's starting to cost you to follow Jesus. Jesus says, behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In other words, if they hate you because of me, don't be surprised. Their ancestors did the same thing to the men who wrote down the prophecies saying that I was coming. And very few Christians are willing to believe Jesus on this count. Because life as we make it is pretty good. We love our own way. I love my own way. Don't you think you're right most of the time? If you discover that you're wrong, you change your mind, and then something amazing happens. You're right again. (laughs) My wife, in a moment of candor, told me years ago, I never forgot it, that I needed to adjust my thinking and realize that not everybody thought the way I did. And I said, well, they should. (laughs) And that's just gut level honesty. But if you're talking to Jesus, it's not only honesty, it's foolishness. It's honest foolishness. Jesus knows how life actually works, He never lies, He always tells you the truth. So this isn't. Bobby McFerrin's little iconic anthem, Don't Worry, Be Happy, remember that? You know, and if you weren't too bummed out, it kind of worked, but when it was really, really bad, you thought the song was stupid and turned it off? (laughs) Jesus never does that. He never deals in platitudes. He always deals in reality because He made reality and He can see what you cannot see. He can see eternity. We can only see life on this earth. Jesus can see life in the kingdom. He can see life in the home that, according to John, he went ahead to prepare for everyone who loves him. 
And the challenge again is what most of us, even after we come to Christ, are trying to do is make our life here as good as it can be on our terms. And Jesus is saying, if you really love and entrust yourself to me, you're going to have to operate under an entirely different set of values where those who are weeping now are blessed because they're going to be comforted. And if you're poor now or persecuted now or whatever difficult thing is happening to you now, if you're following me, if you're doing this for my sake, you can actually rejoice and even leap for joy when life is at its worst because if you stay in step with me, this is going to count forever. Which life here can only do if you entrust yourself to Jesus And that's exactly what James has in mind, I'm convinced, when he writes what follows next in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, I'll start where we were last week just so you can see the bigger picture. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, that's that scattering because of persecution, remember. Greetings. Listen to how much this sounds like Jesus. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, James says, when the world caves in because you're following Christ, remember that's a cause for joy because if you hang in there, you're going to develop character that is the character of God Himself. You're going to grow in godliness as long as you continue to trust Him. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. That's godly character. Lacking in nothing, and you say, James, that's a tall order. How can I do that? What if the trial lasts a long time? What if the trial is very severe? Here's his answer. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. In other words, if you need wisdom to hang in there and know how to act as God's child, continue to trust God when the circumstances tell you you can't or you shouldn't, ask God for wisdom. He'll always give it to you generously, and He'll never tire of giving it to you. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, just keep trusting and just keep asking. Then he says in verse 9 something that appears to be unrelated, but it's not. James is talking to people who are suffering for Jesus, telling them to count it all joy, to adjust their attitude in suffering and to continue to ask God for wisdom in the middle of that trial, then he's going to get what they felt was probably painfully specific in his teaching. And he's going to talk about two kinds of Christians that have been swept up in this persecution. Some are poor, and that would probably be the majority. And some, in spite of the persecution, have maintained their comfort financially. 
And just for context, poor in the ancient world meant that you didn't know what you were going to eat the next day. Rich in the ancient world went from very luxurious and extravagant, like the Romans we imagine in their parties, or simply having food and sufficient shelter that you didn't really have to worry for very, you didn't have to worry for a while. By that standard, by that global and historical standard, what are almost all of us? Rich. <laughs> that wasn't very enthusiastic, but you should, globally and historically, you and I are, most of us, we're, we're doing pretty stinking well, actually. If you read a little history, you'll realize that most of the struggle in human history has been having enough calories. As you can see, that is no longer a problem for some of us. I wish you wouldn't laugh that pointedly when I make a, a self-deprecating joke like that. But think about what Pastor Jim just told you. He said, wait in the air conditioning while the truck with the internal combustion engine loaded with hot, freshly made food has time enough to serve you. What a time to be alive, folks. You can wait in air conditioning until some guy pulls up with hot food and so much of it, you say, oh, I don't know if I'm going to have dinner. You will, but you're going to say, I don't know if I should have dinner. And you will. That's entirely my thing, okay? I'm talking about me. Why am I telling you this? James, in the next three verses, and that's all recovering, is going to talk about a poor brother and then a rich brother. In the persecution, things have gone differently for them. The persecution has been like these hurricanes that skip houses. Maybe you've seen those pictures. You see, they go and film the scene of the disaster, and you'll find one house intact, and then another house is gone. And there's two more houses standing. That guy just needs to replace a few shingles. The neighbor right next to him has it torn down to the foundation. Just the slab is left. That apparently is what has happened. That's the way persecution works. Some get it worse than others. Everyone reading James' letter is wondering how to react in the midst of suffering. Here is his counsel, and listen to how upside down this sounds, how much, in other words, like Jesus this sounds. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What? Lowly, humbled, poor, he should be proud because he's actually being lifted up. What on earth could that possibly mean? It's upside down from the way we normally think. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich man, still a Christian, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Why does James say that the lowly brother can and should boast in his exaltation? For this simple reason, the, the operative word in that sentence is brother. James's point is for those who are suffering, however poor you are and however poor persecution makes you, a Christian is always rich in Christ. 
Your reward is in heaven. Here it's going terribly. It has cost you much. But remember, the lowly brother, the one who no one takes into account, and he'll talk about that later, about favoritism in the church in favor of the rich against the poor. If society thinks nothing of you, if your family thinks you're a disappointment, if you're a Christian, and if some of this suffering, some of this poverty has come on you because you're a Christian, James says, such a man, such a person should remember always that however poor they are, they were always rich in Christ. And that's a baseline biblical Christian truth that every person, regardless of their age and their income, whether you're killing it in life and things are going oh so well, or your life is one long continual struggle, your status, your identity, if you're a Christian, is in Christ. And that is eternal and unchanging, and you can always boast, you can always take confidence, you can always rest, you can always rejoice in that. One of the things we discover as a missionary-minded church is that you have spectacular brothers and sisters around the world who have nothing on this earth, who are poor in the classic historical true sense. They don't know what they're going to eat by the weekend, and yet, though they often weep because of the difficulty of their daily lives, they have a settled joy and a great peace because they have looked up higher and they have been reminded by Scripture and by the Lord Himself that they are actually as rich as God Himself because they're in God's family. And that's where you and I need to start our self-evaluation with Christ because however hard life is and however poor it makes us, we are in Christ. But that's not really, based on word count, that's not really where James is putting his attention. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation seems harsh. Because God doesn't love the poor because they're poor, and He doesn't despise the rich because they're rich, He's in charge of everything. God Himself is rich. How rich is God? He owns everything, including you. He says so. He says in the Old Testament, the silver and the gold are mine. He says things like this, cattle on the hills belongs to me. He's got it all. So, God isn't petulant and childish, and He's certainly not envious. You ever think about that? God's never envied anyone? You and I have. The car that you think you deserve, but this other jerk is driving pulls behind you. Jerk. If you're driving a Chevy, you wouldn't think he was a jerk, but he's driving that car that you want, so he must be. God's not like that. He's talking to Christians, both poor and rich, and he says to the poor, you boast, you take pride, you take confidence, you remember you're being exalted because you're a brother, you're in the family. But for the rich, he has a very different message. And remember, by historic and biblical standards, almost all of us in this room are rich. Why does James say what he does? The rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In other words, James is saying there's a leveling problem here. However poor, a Christian is always rich in Christ, but something else happens in this life. Our life is fragile in spite of our wealth. However comfortable we are, however happy life is yesterday, James says our life here on this earth is like the life of the flower of the grass that will pass away. Because every single one of us runs the risk and has the assurance that someday the sun will rise and wither the grass. The flower falls, its beauty perishes, and we live in a culture that wants to deny the reality of growing old and dying. And in coastal California, we've practically made that a science. And you've seen it at a certain point, at a certain age, it starts to look a little silly. You know what I mean? Because you're not fooling anyone, hopefully not even yourself. What is James doing? He's, as Jesus is doing, he is pulling back from the brutal or the blessed reality of this exact moment because that's life on this earth. It's beautiful one moment and brutal the next. As Jesus is continually doing, now the brother of Jesus is pulling back the lens and lifting the lens to help you see eternity. James is actually, I'm convinced, relying on something he read in his Bible, the Old Testament, before he came to Christ. This is Isaiah. A voice says, cry. And that's Isaiah's prophetic way of saying, I'm going to speak for God now. God has told me, lift up your voice and cry out. Shout to these people. Let them know the truth about this reality. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And here's the message. All flesh is like grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. Here's the truth. Here's the encouragement. Would you read that last part with me? But the Word of our God will stand forever. What's the point? That you and I won't be here long. And, and listen, again, not to make too much of it, but I'm sincerely grateful for your kindness last weekend. The occasion was, we've never done that before, let's never do that again. But the occasion was one of the big milestone birthdays. I turned 50. I'm as surprised as anybody. In my mind, I'm still 20-something and, you know, just brimming with vigor. Let that, I'll make you a deal. Let's do that when I hit 100. Why'd you laugh? You laughed because of the actuarial tables. It's very unlikely that I'm going to make it. Even if I do, most of you won't be here for the celebration. <laughs> Either way, you're off the hook. If you're just a kid, you won't have to worry about it. If you're older than me, you probably won't make it yourself, so it's no problem. But we've gotten really good at living for the right here, right now. And Isaiah says, and Jesus says, and James is repeating, listen, Christians, 
You've come to trust Christ. He really is the Savior. That's why they call Him Christ. It's a title. He's the one. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the one who dies for sin and rises from the grave to give eternal life to all who believe. And you're all swept away in this persecution. I want you to remember if you're poor and losing everything, whatever else you lose, your money, your status, your health, your life itself, you are eternally rich in Christ. But listen, rich people, you're as Christian as the rest of them, but you have a continual temptation to trust and love your wealth rather than trust and love your Lord, and I don't want you to do that because it doesn't matter how rich you are, your life on this earth won't last for long. And James is as specific and as incisive about money as Jesus Himself was because Jesus and James both knew how enticing money is. Listen to Jesus teach again. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve who? You know, more people serve money than God? By far. Here's how most people arrange their lives probably until they're mature, most Christians too, regarding money, whatever it takes. Long hours, time away, anything, just as long as I can have in my mind however, money, however much money it takes for me to feel better, me to feel comfortable. What Jesus is telling you is that money makes a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Christians who see life from Jesus' perspective realize that they won't have their money for long, and the best thing is to use it for Jesus' purposes, for kingdom purposes, to save souls, to rescue those who will die without God of all ages, in all conditions, in all nations, both the wealthy and the poor. They'll all be poor eternally unless they come to Christ. But Jesus knows how much we love money, how much we love status. So He says to the poor, cheer up. doesn't matter that you're poor. It doesn't matter that it's cost you everything. You're in the family of God. You're a brother or a sister in the family of God. Your status is secure. Nothing will change that if they impoverish you and starve you to death. The moment after you die for the cause of Christ, you'll be in heaven, never to hunger again. You can read the back of the book and see how rich the feast is, the imagery that God uses to describe His abundant, wealthy provision for all of His children who someday make it to glory, both rich and poor. But James knows in the midst of suffering that we are tempted to believe that if we have enough money, we can solve all of our problems, and that we will rely on money rather than God, and that's why he says to the rich, you should boast in your humiliation because you might be like that tycoon who dies in the middle of his pursuits. And every once in a while, we hear the story of some great, great, iconic leader who dies at his desk. And all of us think, what a shame. And then you hear that his children despised him. 
or his private life was a wreck. And nothing about him had the scent of Jesus on it, and you think it was all for naught. That is the awakening that James is trying to bring to Christians, to Christians, to us. Because if you just live your Christian life under this understanding, I've been forgiven, so I will spend my time, my love, my money, my resources, my energy, and my intelligence any way I please to get life on my terms and make it as good as I can for myself, you'll waste it. The poor are being told, no matter how poor you are, you're in Christ. The rich are being told something very different. No matter how wealthy the Christian, the Christian should remember that his life is fleeting. However rich, and I'm speaking to me, because by global standards, I'm wealth beyond, wealthy beyond all imagination. I grew up not in poverty, but around poverty as the son of missionaries. I know what poverty and want looks like. I don't have that. So James would say to me, Bruce, on your 50th birthday, and I would say to you, even if you're 14, Christian, remember, your life is short. You'll be 50 before you realize it. You'll ask yourself, how did I ever get to be this age? Holy buckets, I'm old. When did that happen? You don't have as long as you think, and your resources aren't as precious to you as they will be to Jesus if only you will trust them with you. What am I trying to tell you? Simply this. Our status is never found in cash. It's always found in Christ. Always in Christ. Never in cash. So if you're poor and suffering and hurting and life is very, very difficult, remember you're in God's family. If you have not much more to give to Jesus honestly, but your love and your allegiance, that is enough. You're rich. If, like me, you have not a calorie deficit but a surplus, if you've been blessed and you can remember having less than you now do, don't keep moving the line out there for what it will take you to be happy. You'll never be happy on those terms. Your status, your confidence, your peace, your reward is only found in Christ. Live for Him now, lest you waste it. Let's pray. Before we enjoy a meal together, let me just ask you, do you know Christ? If not, can I invite you to do what Jesus said and turn away from whatever you've been loving instead of Him? Ask Him forgiveness for your sins. Ask Him to give you eternal life. If you do, could I ask you to imagine Him? You'll have to visualize it, but it's not imagination. Him evaluating the way you live the way you love, the way you choose, the way you spend. And ask yourself, have you been pursuing kingdom values? Has, you, has your status been more about success and cash rather than kingdom and Christ? Ask Him to give you the humility, the courage, the love to make the adjustments. If you need 
counseling, encouragement. If today you're taking a step toward Jesus, we invite all of those responses on the card that's in your bulletin. We'd love to have a conversation with you, help you be sure your next step with Christ. Lord Jesus, help us see ourselves as we are, rich. Help us not to love anything on this earth more than we love you. Help us to take in every blessing. Realize that it has come for you, from you. Thank you for it, but then use it for you, for your kingdom, for your purposes. Thank you for the many who have done that. Bless them. Encourage them. Keep them steady and strong. There are many more, perhaps, Lord, who have just taken you as a, an emblem of forgiveness, but they're not really living out discipleship. Day by day, choice by choice, check by check, decision by decision, you haven't changed much. Forgive us, Lord, wherever that is true. Sharpen our vision. Speed our steps that we may walk with you. I ask this, Lord, for your glory, for our good, that we may not waste our lives. In Christ's name, we thank you for this day, for the food we will enjoy as a church family. May it all praise you. Help us to follow hard after you, Jesus, I pray. In your name, and Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you. Love you.